It's Christmas Eve. It's it's the one night of the year when we all act a little nicer. We 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 smile a little easier. We 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 we, we cheer a little more. For a couple of hours out of the whole year, we are the people that we always hoped we would be. It's a miracle. It's really a sort of a miracle because it happens every Christmas Eve. You have to do something. You have to take a chance. You do have to get involved. There are people that are having having trouble making their miracle happen. There are people that don't have enough to eat. That there are people that are cold. You can go out and say hello to these people. You can take an old blanket out of the closet and say, here, you can make them a sandwich and say, oh, by the way, here. I get it now. And if you if you give, then, you, then it can happen. Then the miracle can happen to you. It's not just the poor and the hungry. It's, it's everybody who's got to have this miracle. And it can happen tonight for all of you. If you believe in this spirit thing, you, you the miracle will happen, and then you'll want it to happen again tomorrow. You won't be one of these bastards who says Christmas is once a year and it's a fraud. It's not. It can happen every day. You've just got to want that feeling. And if you like it and you want it, you'll get greedy for it. You'll want it every day of your life, and it can happen to you. I don't. I believe in it now. I believe it's going to happen to me now. I'm ready for it. And I, it's great. It's a good feeling. It's, it's really better than I've felt in a long time. Have a Merry Christmas, everybody. Hello out there, my friends. This is Tim Benal of BenalofAmerica.com with another edition of Benal of America Audio. Merry Christmas, ladies and gentlemen. It is December 24th, 2005, Christmas Eve. Now, back a few weeks ago, I'd planned this out. I'd hoped that we could have a special interview with Stanton Friedman for you on Christmas Eve. And really, ladies and gentlemen, this is the culmination of a great plan. I really love it when a plan comes together, and it did this time around as we have got for you a brand spanking new interview with Stanton Friedman done by yours truly. In time for the holidays, perfect for your car ride to grandma's or to put on the radio while you're preparing Christmas dinner. This is the interview you're going to want to hear as the soundtrack for your Christmas. For those of you unfamiliar with Stanton Friedman, I'm not even sure why you're listening to this then, but we'll give you his background so you can get caught up with the rest of us who know what's going on in the world. Stanton Friedman received a BS and MS degree in physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 56. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist for such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas on such advanced classified, eventually canceled projects as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and nuclear power plants for space. He has provided written testimony to congressional hearings, appeared twice at the United Nations, and been a pioneer in many aspects of ufology, including Roswell, Majestic 12, 
the Betty Hill Marjorie Fish star map work, analysis of the Delphos Kansas physical trace case, crashed saucers, flying saucer technology, and challenges to the SETI, as he calls it, the silly effort to investigate cultists. He's the author of two books, Crash of Corona, The Definitive Study of the Roswell Incident, and the newly reissued Top Secret Magic that is available as I speak. If you're listening to this early Christmas Eve, you can probably run out to the bookstore and grab it for someone you love right now. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, it is time for the Banal of America Audio Christmas Eve special, An Hour with Stanton Friedman. We recorded this one on December 11th, 2005. It is BanalofAmerica.com's special Christmas gift to you. Stanton Friedman on Banal of America Audio, Season 1. Ladies and gentlemen, I have a very special treat for you all uh, this week on Banal of America Audio. This is a real thrill for me. He was the first person we had on as an interview at Banal of America Audio. I grew up watching Stanton Friedman. Um... I can't even express how much uh, I'm in awe of the man himself and his work. So, and I think uh, when the true history of the human race is written, um, Stanton Friedman will probably go down as one of the most important people in the late 20th century. So, to get the chance to speak with him is just an honor and a thrill for someone who's just getting into the UFO world. So, Stanton Friedman, thank you so much for the interview. Welcome to Banal of America Audio. Happy holidays. My, my pleasure. Um, uh, with that introduction, I'm riding 10 feet off the ground, after all. <laughs> I didn't end at the end of the 20th century, though. I'm still going in the first part of the 21st. I realize that. I, <laughs> I realize that. Well, you know, I meant every word of it, so, you know, I'm just totally psyched to have you on here. And as a young ufologist, you're just a hero to me, so... And um, you're a living legend in the field of ufology, so to get you on the show is a huge boost for us, too, so it's great for everybody. Um, I wanted to start out with my first question uh, on Roswell, and this was kind of like, at what point in your investigation of Roswell did you think to yourself, this could be real, like, this is, there's something to this? Well, I started off more or less neutral, but after talking to Jesse Marcel and after... Um, I was the first to talk, first ufologist, if you will, to talk to Jesse back in the late 70s. And after Bill Moore dug out the newspaper articles that talked about the Roswell event from early July 1947, and after we found uh, about 62 people by the time the first book came out, uh, the Roswell incident in 1980 by William L. Moore and uh, Charles Berlitz, I was firmly convinced by then because I found military people, I found all kinds of support for what Jesse had said. And because it was independent of him, in other words, I heard his story, but then after seeing the newspaper articles talking to other people, got a completely independent validation, verification of what he said, got a look at the base yearbook at Roswell, no question he was indeed the intelligence officer. it was pretty clear. Uh, we already knew, of course, that uh, the summer of 47 was a big time for ufology, uh, Kenneth Arnold's sighting being June 24th. But uh, th- this was just a, a natural follow-up to that. And uh, I had no reason. Remember, I-, I was talking to people, Bill Moore and I were talking to people, well before the television cameras around, were around. Yeah. These were people who weren't looking for publicity. We had to track them down. My phone bill, Bill's phone bill, each was running hundreds of dollars a month. Oh, man. I really resent people uh, 
like Peter Jennings saying that the witnesses can't crawl out of the woodwork. That's nonsense. It was good, hard, investigatory journalism kind of work, and there was no internet back then, strange as that may sound to some of your listeners. Uh, and so, you know, you had to do it the old-fashioned way. You got Christmas lists from people. Uh, you know, we talked to 62 by 1980. By 1985, it was 92. Oh, wow. And so it didn't take long after the first few dozen people. And the kind of people we talked to, I mean, you know, people uh, try to ignore the fact that the 509th, the military group based at Roswell Army Airfield, later Water Airfield in Roswell, was the most elite military group in the entire world, not just in the United States, but in the entire world. They had dropped the nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They dropped two more in uh, Operation Crossroads in the Pacific in 1946. Uh, they were the bastion of democracy uh, with B-29s ready to drop atomic bombs on the Soviet Union as the uh, Cold War heated up. And so, you know, we're not talking about guys who wandered in off the street who had nothing better to do than but twiddle their thumbs and make up crazy stories. I get angry when people start acting like these are a bunch of nuts down there. They weren't. Yeah. Uh, one guy, uh, a big skeptic, well, the public relations guy, public information officer, made up the whole story to get attention. I said, you don't know his name, do you? Well, no. Well, I've been in his home. This is Walter Houghton we're talking about, H-A-U-T. I've been in his home. I've talked to people in Roswell about him. He was not just a public information officer. He was a bombardier, navigator bombardier during World War II, had 30 missions over Japan, bombing raids. He was still a member of a bombing crew at Roswell. The notion that he would make up a story and release it on his own is the silliest nonsense I've ever heard. I mean, you know, it, you just didn't do that. We're talking the military after World War II. Uh, you follow orders. Uh, you do what you're told to do, and certainly with the 509th, you didn't do it on your own. This is, you know, so that's typical of the kind of garbage that's been out there. Okay, now looking back on it, it's been like 25 years or so since you guys did the, the groundbreaking work and, and really brought Roswell to the forefront. Um, what do you think of the cultural impact it's had on America? I mean, Roswell has become uh, a, just a thing you know, unto itself. It's become a symbol, no question. I mean, look at Independence Day picking up on Roswell. Look at the movies. And, you know, as an indicator of public interest in this subject, you have to notice that there have been over 2 million visitors to the International UFO Museum and Research Center, which is about 10 years old now, in Roswell. And bear in mind that Roswell isn't on our way to anywhere. It's 200 miles from Albuquerque, 200 miles from Amarillo, 200 miles from El Paso. Yeah. And yet two million people have gone to the museum. And I should add, uh, there's no admissions charge. And I mention that only because there have been really stupid articles saying that people like Walter Hout and others own the museum and were making a ton of money from their ownership of the museum. It's a nonprofit corporation, for goodness sakes, yes. They do sell T-shirts and my books. They're my best customer, as a matter of fact, and, you know, anything ufological. But, you know, my wife and I went to Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, we were had a little vacation. And the big thing in Fredericksburg is a big tourist attraction. 
is that during the Civil War, there was a battle, repeated charges up the hill, and 8,000 or so young men got killed that day. I mean, the field reeked of blood, if you will. Now, there's nothing wrong with them commemorating that, so people who go there get some feeling for what happened. Should we resent the fact that you can buy T-shirts and mugs and all the rest of that? Of course not. It's the American way. You go someplace, you want something to bring home. Uh, I don't mean a T-shirt that says my folks went off someplace and only brought me back. <laughs> you know what I mean. But what, what I'm saying is Roswell has become a symbol, partly because the climate of, uh, what do I call it, well, opinion, if you will, it's, it's deeper than that, in the United States has been to ridicule UFOs. Even though the polls all show they're more believers than non-believers, and the greater the education, the more likely to believe, just the reverse of what the noisy negativists try to tell us. Still, many people are afraid to talk about UFOs. They're free to report their sightings. I check all my lecture audiences, well over 700 in 50 states, nine provinces, and 14 other countries. And at the end of my lecture, I check how many people here believe they've seen a UFO, and it's typically 10%. And my lectures, Flying Saucers, are real. So you know where I'm coming from, and I make it very clear in the lecture. But uh, they're not sure about the rest of the audience. The hands go up reluctantly at first, and then more readily when people see they're not the only ones. But then I ask, how many of you reported what you saw? 90% of the hands go down. And the biggest reason they go down, and people tell me this when I ask them, and they want to tell me and get it off their chest, they think I was some kind of a nut. So Roswell has provided a mental health function as a place that people can talk about without fear of really being laughed at. After all, it's on television, there are books, there are movies, yeah. you know, the whole business. It's legitimatized, if you will. And, you know, as another example of that, I once asked in a college class, most of my lectures are at colleges, um, I want you to, I told, told the students, about 100 students, I want you to answer with your hands, but with your eyes closed so that you won't be influenced by the other people in the room, and your instructor and I will count the votes. 80% thought most people didn't believe in UFOs, and 80% of that group did believe in UFOs. <laughs> so there's a big dichotomy. So Roswell has become a stalking horse, if you will. Uh, when the 50th anniversary event occurred in 1997, there were over 300 registered newsmen there. Oh, wow. And uh, I, I was busy the whole time. Every time I went back to my hotel room, there was another reporter or somebody who wanted to talk to me. I, I gave the final lecture, and they had a series of lectures during a week. And the kicker here was that here were these people, about 70-some thousand showed up at one time or another during the week. And Roswell, in 47, had 25,000. Now it's just under 50,000. To get that many people coming into town at one time is really quite something. Oh, yeah. But the people come from all over the world. And, you know, I really resent that like Time Magazine had a front cover with the word Roswell in big print and a silly artist drawing of a supposedly a female alien with big lips and sort of sexy looking. Yeah. And nobody's ever described an alien looking like that. And, you know, they, they take, uh, people take pot shots at Roswell. Uh, they're just benefiting from people's gullibility. Well, you know what? Time Magazine doesn't give copies away. 
they don't give their advertising away. They sell them, and that was their biggest selling issue in 1997 until Princess Di died uh, wow. a few months later. So, you know, uh, the pot calling the kettle black, and like I say, it doesn't cost you to go to the museum. So it, it's, Roswell has become an important symbol. It's also become a focal point for the nasty, noisy negativists, of course. I've read some of the silliest drivel about Roswell by the critics, not, not just that Walter Hart made up the story, but, uh, you know, the Air Force put out two volumes, the Roswell Report, Truth versus Fiction in the Desert, in the New Mexico Desert, and the Air Force provided the fiction. That was the first one. That's the mogul balloon explanation, which simply doesn't fit. The materials don't match the witness testimony. The dates don't match the witness testimony in the newspaper accounts. Nothing about it fits. They say that uh, the rancher found the stuff on uh, June the 14th, uh, and all there was, according to one of the participants, was uh, it was obviously a weather balloon, he said, uh, covered an area 20 feet square, easily fit in one vehicle. Now, this is from a retired colonel, I might add, Sheridan W. Cavett, who w went out there with uh, Jesse Marcel. Now, that's obvious nonsense. When I first talked to Jesse, he said it covered an area hundreds of feet wide, the debris field, and three-quarters of a mile long. Uh, and furthermore... If that's all there had been, the rancher would have brought it into town. They said it would easily fit in one vehicle, and there would have been no reason for Marcel and Cabot to follow him out to the ranch. Yeah. 75, 80 miles of bouncy, crummy road, the last 10 miles cross-country. And the only way he could get there, I mean, Cabot says he didn't even meet the rancher. Well, the only way he could get there was to follow him out. They didn't have GPS back then, you know. And so... You know, we get these crazy stories. Uh, obviously, a balloon, somebody forgot to tell them, hey, it's supposed to be a mogul balloon with 23 to 25 uh, weather balloons and sono boys and all kinds of other junk. Uh, you know, it, it, this kind of nonsense aggravates me. But I think the reality is that most people have come to recognize that there's something to Roswell because the second volume of the Air Force report had one of the silliest explanations I've ever heard, crash test dummies. Because the stories about bodies being found, you know, the Air Force says, oh, we did a lot of research and we found we were dropping crash test dummies all over the place out there. And uh, fortunately, there was somebody at the press conference when this was announced in 1997, the first volume came out in 1994, and lied about me and a lot of other things. But anyway, in the second volume, th there was a reporter at the press conference where this uh, colonel makes the announcement. Well, wasn't Roswell in 1947? When did they drop these dummies? Well, uh, 1953 on, uh, people confabulate. They can't remember very well. Well, there's no question about when Roswell happened. I got a whole bunch of newspaper headlines, and I mean headlines, uh, about, you know, Army captures flying saucer, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, so the Air Force invented time travel for crash test dummies. And it's even worse than that. I managed to locate uh, Colonel Madsen, who was in charge of that program. He wasn't a colonel at the time. But he, was, he was still living in New Mexico when I found him. And we met in Albuquerque, spent some time with him. And... Uh, 
he stressed to me, he said, look, Stan, for those tests to be meaningful, and, you know, it's a good idea to use dummies when you're trying out ejection seats on airplanes. <laughs> if they don't work very well, you don't want a pilot in there. Or if you toss one out of a balloon, you'd like to know uh, what happens. Yeah. Uh, people sometimes forget that if, you, if you're at a very high altitude, and the Second World War was the first time we were flying at high altitudes, really, um, you really don't want to open your chute right away if you have to leave the plane because you'll freeze to death before you get back. Well, you know, so there was a lot of work to be done as yeah. to what happened. Anyway, Colonel Matson told me that, look, for the test to be meaningful, the dummies had to be the same size and weight as pilots. I've got pictures of him with one of the dummies. And uh, it was six feet tall and weighed 175 pounds. Now, there's no way you can compress that to a little, you know, three to four foot high little guy. Uh <laughs> It, it just makes no sense at all, besides which, if you look at the map that the Air Force published in their second volume, the Roswell Report, case closed. You know, even in the first volume, they said they were never going to say anything more about Roswell, but they lied again. <laughs> but uh, if you look at the map that they show, anthropomorphic test dummy drop locations, a title like that, they use it three times. There were no drops where the two crashes were. <laughs> You know, one of those ludicrous kind of things. So uh, people aren't stupid. Uh, what I find in my lecturing, and I always have an open question and answer period, and I come on pretty strong, is that people aren't stupid. And I can follow the logic. I've only had 11 hecklers in over 700 lectures. And you're going to get that many if you talk about sports, religion, politics, whatever. So Roswell has become a symbol of a much larger thing than the government cover-up as well as visits the planet Earth by alien spacecraft. Yeah. Now, this was sort of like your baby when it started out. Was it frustrating when this thing started taking on these permutations and other people well, started trying to get in on it? Yeah, I, I didn't mind people doing research on it. I resented some of the misrepresentations in some of the books. And uh, I was a major contributor to the first book, uh, The Roswell Incident by Robertson Moore. Bill and I did 95% of the research. Uh, the second book was by Don Berliner and myself in 92. Uh, I instigated, I guess that's you, what you could call it, the Unsolved Mysteries television program about Roswell in 1989 and uh, convinced them to do a program, which they did a fine job on, one of the better uh, television pieces. And surprisingly enough, uh, a number of people called in. They had a toll-free number in the other two short segments of the show. They didn't give it during the Roswell segment. And yet, dozens of people called in who knew something about the story. They hadn't read the book. Yeah. But Uncle Joe, Cousin Bill, Neighbor John, you know, that sort of thing. And because I had instigated the program, I got access to some of those people. So Don Berliner, very active in UFO research, first with NICAP and then with the Fund for UFO Research, and I combined on a book. I did most of the research. She did most of the writing. He's written two dozen aviation-related books. Uh, and then the, the noisy negativist came out in force later on. Philip Klass wrote an anti-Roswell book. Uh, Carl Flock did. Uh, Cal Korf did. Uh, a couple of professors from uh, uh, colleges back east did. And 
you know, I've noted a number of their false claims and stuff that I've written. Yeah. They can't get the basic information right. That's what I resent. And, you know, there's a new edition of my book, uh, Top Secret Magic, that's out. Uh, the first edition came out in 96. And the second edition, which just came out in September, it's already in a second printing, uh, has an additional chapter, 5,000 words, well, 4,995, I think. <laughs> they gave me a goal, a target, um, in which I correct the false claims made since the first edition came out um, about both Roswell and the Majestic 12 documents. And, awesome. you know, it, it's kind of incredible the garbage that passes for research from professors, no less. Yeah. And, and you know, all you got to do is get away from being armchair theorists and go out in the field a little bit. And so I do resent the attacks that are baseless, the attacks that where people ignore the facts and the data. It, it reminds me, this is generally true in ufology, uh, the biggest study ever done about flying saucers was Project Blue Book Special Report Number 14. Uh, data on 3,201 sightings, study done by Battelle Memorial Institute in Columbus, Ohio, under contract in the United States Air Force. Biggest study ever done, all 240 charts, tables, graphs, and maps. I was in data heaven. Anyway, would you believe there are 13 anti-UFO books that don't even mention it, although I can guarantee you that all of the authors of those books were aware of it. Now, that aggravates me as a physicist that people... The approach to debunking, it's not just UFOs, it's anything that these keepers of the public uh, conscience uh, want to attack. Uh, they, they have four basic rules. What the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. Don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. If I, you can't attack the data, attack the people. It's a heck of a lot easier. And do your research by proclamation. Investigation is too darn much trouble. And so I find this. I was recently at a conference of the Association of Research and Enlightenment, Edgar Casey's people back in Virginia. And uh, in talking to other people, it's clear that these are the techniques used by the anti-Casey, anti-quote paranormal, unquote, people. Yeah. Uh, instead of doing their homework, I mean, you know, you hear so much stupid stuff from well, supposedly well-educated people that you wonder, does our world have any standards at all in, in terms of investigative journalism? Uh, as an example of that, I just finished a book, just wrote a review for the MUFON Journal as part of my, I do a monthly column, yep. on MUFON's address and how to find me and all the rest of that are on my website, www.stantonfriedman, F-R-I-E-D-M-A-N. Com. And there's a book by a woman from Harvard, no less, PhD in psychology. It's, um, let's see, abducted. Yeah. Why people believe they have come to believe they have been kidnapped by aliens. That's less than 200 pages long. And it's terrible. <laughs> she describes a few cases, gets all the facts wrong. And yet she claims she's read everything that's ever been written about UFOs, about abductions. Uh, I mean, it, you know, that's such a bald-faced lie. I don't know whether she believes it or not, but, uh, you know, these kinds of things do bother me because it's published by Harvard University Press, mind you. 
and she's an attractive woman, and she's been on television. She was in that terrible Peter Jennings program. Uh, you know, yeah. UFOs, uh, seeing is believing, February 24th, 19, uh, 2005. I got 20 seconds. She got a lot more than that. But uh, And she was also in the Larry King show with uh, several ufologists. Yep. Yep. And so, you know, it, it's really aggravating. She starts off by telling you that she'd been working on false memory syndrome especially with regard to sexual abuse of children, which people think about, you know, when they're 20s or so forth. Yeah. Now, the question, of course, is, is it the hypnotist who's providing the the story, or is it really something that happened? Well, she says that, you know, with uh, sexual abuse, it's hard to know what did happen when the person was young. However, in alien abductions, we can be sure it didn't happen. So we know it's false memory if somebody claims it. And she repeats that. There are no aliens. Aliens don't exist. Uh, this is a researcher? Uh, you know, uh, and I'm incredulous. So this kind of thing is what we see happening. Uh, the powers of evil, if you will, <laughs> are noisy. That's why I call them noisy negativists. And uh, the rules that I enunciated, as I say, work for everything that... Uh, the powers that be don't want to be true. Yeah. And, you know, one of the worst offenders here are the SETI cultists, as I call them. You know, SETI, silly effort to investigate. Mm -hmm. I guess most people think it's supposed to be search for extraterrestrial intelligence, but these guys aren't looking for extraterrestrial intelligence. They're trying to pick up signals. Uh, the only kind they can pick up are ones that are sent out using the kind of equipment that we have. They assume there's no colonization, no migration, no UFOs, nobody coming here, but they will serve mankind by listening and listening until they finally get a message. And, you know, we've had advanced technology, radio systems, if you will, for a hundred years, roughly, give or take a few. And, you know, sophisticated technology for much less than that. I shock people by saying, hey, when I started working in industry, I was using a slide rule. And I said that to two classes of students in Detroit two years ago. None of them knew what a slide rule was, which <laughs> makes me feel very old. But anyway, what I'm saying is the notion that aliens are stuck at the same level of technology as we are is absurd. They think, these guys think, we're, they're, we, all of us, we earthlings, are the crown of creation. And in the reality is that we're much more like the gorillas in a nature preserve in Africa, totally unaware of what's going around outside of us. Yeah. And what we kind of forget is all the time available. A hundred years for our technology, our first flight 102 years ago, uh, this month, as a matter of fact, maybe even today, uh, Wright Brothers and all that. Um, well, the Earth is four and a half billion years old. The universe is at least 13 billion years old. Just down the street, there are stars that are a billion years older than the sun. Uh, and we think we've got the most advanced technology? That's ridiculous. Now, these guys, of course, do believe that if aliens were coming here, they'd want to talk to them. Of course. And they haven't asked for an appointment, so they must not be coming here. But so I, I find this arrogance. And they've had a free ride from the press. Uh, nobody wants to say the emperor doesn't have any clothes. Well, I say so. Exactly. I, I took on Dr. Seth Shostak, whom, in one of the craziest things in, in uh, Susan Clancy's book, abducted, 
She says, Betty and Barney Hill, and I had met both of them. I'd been in Betty's home. I was the first to publish about the star map work and all the rest of that. And here she's saying that uh, they were widely accepted because, in the words of Dr. Seth Shostak of the SETI Institute, they were Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch. Now think about that. In the first place, I listened to Shostak lecture. He and I did three hours of debate on coast-to-coast radio. Mm-hmm. I've read his books. He knows nothing about UFOs. Yeah. Look for his references. Where are the five large-scale scientific studies that I talk about? You heard my lecture on the Queen Elizabeth II. We each gave three lectures. It's like a one in one year and out the other. And to call a mixed-racial couple, Barney Hill was black after all, and Betty White, in 1961 in New Hampshire, Mr. and Mrs. Front Porch, I mean, it was still illegal to marry somebody of another race in the United States in several states at that time. That was hardly, uh, uh, you know, standard, normal, operating, uh, you know, you're run-of-the-mill American couple. Uh, and have it coming from him, who knows nothing about the subject, that, that's getting insult to injury. Exactly. Now, do you think... Um do you think Seth Shostak, I kind of like to think that he's the new Phil Class of uh, this generation. No, he doesn't know enough about UFOs to be the new Phil Class. Uh, he's got competition for that, but he certainly is trying to be a spokesman for SETI. Well, he's got a good sense of humor. He lectures all over the place trying to help raise money. These guys need a high profile. He, Jill Tarter, uh, Frank Drake. Uh, if I was to be suspicious about something, it'd probably be Drake, because Drake was in the military between college and graduate school and worked on electronic countermeasures. And uh, you need a high-level clearance to do that in the Navy. Yeah. Uh, and he stayed in the reserve for at least 10 years, and he was closely connected with Dr. Donald Menzel at Harvard, who I found out, to my total surprise, was up to his ears in classified work. Nobody knew that, and I did, certainly didn't when I found it out. Uh, more than 30 years with the NSA, uh, National Security Agency, as of 1960. Classified work for the CIA, for 30 other companies. I discovered this at Harvard. Took permission from three people for me to look at his papers. So there was a close connection between those two. And so you wonder, what was Drake during, doing during the summers? They like highly educated, talented people, and he certainly fills that bill. Uh, you know, to do classified work in the summers when they're not teaching. Yeah. Now, some people have suggested that Carl Sagan was also in on things. I don't know. Carl and I were classmates for three years at the University of Chicago when I last visited him at his home in the 90s in uh, Ithaca, New York. We agreed that if he did have a clearance to have classified information about this, he couldn't talk about it anyway. <laughs> well, and I respect that. I've worked yeah. under security for 14 yeah. years. And so, you know, you, I can't make jokes about that uh, but I, it's still in my gray basket. I don't know whether he was on the inside. He certainly said some stupid things about UFOs. On the other hand, he did more than any other individual that I can think of to get people interested in extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, and that's a good thing. Now, there's a chapter in my book, Top Secret Magic, where I point out all the silly things he says in Demon Haunted World about UFOs. Uh, so, you know, was he just doing a job? And I'm still waiting to find out whether Class, who died uh, not very long ago, uh, was hooked up. I've had two people tell me that they saw him in classified facilities where you had to have a clearance to be present. Oh, really? 
And, you know, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I filed some Freedom of Information Act requests, and I'm waiting. That sometimes can take a while. And if there's anybody out there who's doing the same thing, uh, my email address is at my website, www.stantonfriedman.com. It's FS, as in Flying Saucer, P-H-Y-S, as in Physicist, at Rogers, R-O-G-E-R-S, dot com. Uh, flying Saucer Physicist at Rogers, dot com. Um, okay, one big question I really want to ask you is, uh, well, I've spoken to Greg Bishop. He wrote uh, Project Beta. Yeah. Um, and a lot of that book deals with Bill Moore, and Bill Moore's sort of being rediscovered, at least he's being <laughs> firstly discovered by me, but sort of rediscovered by ufology. And uh, you were you did a lot of research with Bill. We worked very closely together for several years. Yeah. yeah. Um, how in tune were you to what, what he was up to with the government? And overall, what do you think of that whole, like, his whole saga as a ufologist and well, how he ended up leaving the field? It, it's a very mixed bag. Bill was a kind of strange guy. He was kind of paranoid about people. He liked playing games. He was a union negotiator for a teachers' union up in Minnesota. And, uh, you know, you run it up the flagpole and see who salutes kind of thing. <laughs> and he was a very hard worker. He did a lot of research. He dug out all kinds of stuff. He would go to archives. We went to some together. Uh, he would go to, you know, places to get records of people and stuff. Uh, I knew he was in touch with insiders after he started promoting uh, the first book, The Roswell Incident. Yeah. And he would uh, call me. We would meet in various places at conferences and so forth. And uh, he could drive me up the wall, but he, I introduced him to Jamie Chandray. And it was Jamie who received a roll of film with the Eisenhower briefing document, the first of the MJ-12 documents. And they called me the same day after Bill uh, processed the film. And I met with them less than a month later in California and looked at the documents. We kept in very close touch with each other and wrote papers for MUFON conferences. Um, he, he was playing games with the guys on the inside. And I was very upset when in uh, Las Vegas, it was either 88 or 89, I guess, he gave a paper. He was supposed to send me an advanced copy, and normally uh, I've spoken at more MUFON conferences than anybody, and this was a MUFON conference. Uh, you have to submit a paper. Well, Bill didn't do that, and he was supposed to let me know what he was going to say in advance because I was going to be there and giving a paper myself. And I got it just a couple of days in advance, and I told him, Bill, you should have started at the bottom of page five. Uh he wanted to emphasize disinformation, and I said people want information. And uh, he didn't even stay at the uh, conference hotel. He was playing it independently. He didn't take questions. He talked much longer than he was supposed to. It was kind of a fiasco. I wanted to crawl through the floor. He asked his own questions. See? Yeah. And I was to meet him for lunch, and I told him, you know, you screwed up the program, but good. And he, his feeling was good. And so he admitted his involvement with um, Richard Doty versus Paul Benowitz. Yeah. And, you know, I, I can understand it. It was a quid pro quo thing. And I'd heard long before that that Benowitz was a little bit off the wall anyway with what he was doing. 
so I, I didn't approve of a lot of that. And then Bill and Jamie were raising money to do a movie and a book, and neither thing ever happened. They did go to Washington after I found out that certain documents were being declassified, or there was a classification review of certain Air Force files. And that's where they found the Cutler Twining memo, and Bill called me the same day uh, that night uh, to read what they had found and so forth. So uh, I certainly feel that he made a tremendous contribution to ufology. He was kind of off the wall in some ways, uh, and he did do this game playing. He flashed a MUFON membership card to a guy, Lee Graham, uh, and said it was his Air Force uh, intelligence officer ID kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that was par for the course for Bill, <laughs> frankly. He was always late, and that drove me up the wall, <laughs> frankly. You know. So, you know, I haven't talked to him in years. We had a big argument the last time we got together. Uh, and I know he's talked to these. There's some quotes from him. There's a movie that was made by a Canadian uh, producer, uh, Campbell, uh, Kimball. <laughs> my goodness, uh, in uh, Red Star Films down in Nova Scotia. Uh, the movie is Stanton T. Friedman is Real. Oh, played yeah. on Canadian television. Yep. Paul Kimball. And uh, he was in touch with Bill, who indicated he certainly didn't think I'd fake the documents. Uh, it, it was either in that movie or in the other one, uh, Do You Believe in Magic, which is another movie made by Paul. It was on, it's around the... Uh, Space Channel in Canada. They're listed on my website, too, for anybody who's wondering what the heck is he talking about. But And Bill uh, did not say bad things about me, and I heard an interview that he did on the radio with somebody. I guess it was Greg Bishop. Uh, yeah, I think, yeah. Yep. Uh, and uh, he sounded pretty rational to me. So there are not a lot of people that have come and gone in ufology. I don't know why I've stayed the course this long. I mean, my first lecture was 1967, for goodness sakes, <laughs> which makes me feel pretty ancient. But I guess it's because I feel I bring to bear certain special aspects of my background that nobody else embodies in one person, just that's just the way things are. Uh, a, I'm a nuclear physicist. I worked on far-out propulsion systems. I can deal with the you-can't-get-here-from-there kind of arguments, none of which stand up. Uh, second, I worked under security for 14 years, so those people say you can't keep secrets. Don't know what they're talking about. I've been to 20 archives. I've written classified documents. I understand how security works. Um, and this has to do with MJ-12 documents as well as anything else. So, uh, just a, a fact to indicate that the government, three facts, that the government can keep secrets. The Eisenhower Library still has 300,000 pages of classified material. He went out of office in 1961. Uh, secondly, the National Reconnaissance Office announced uh, just a couple months ago the Poppy satellite had been launched by them in 1962 to 1971. <laughs> This was the first public mention of it, and uh, it was what it was for, incidentally, was to keep track of electronic uh, emissions from Soviet ships. And the third thing is, in 1995, the Naval Research Lab announced that it had established the first electronic intelligence satellite, the Corona satellite, like the cigar or the old Toyota Corona or whatever. <laughs> 
It was in 1960. First public word, 1995. Oh, wow. And don't tell me your techniques haven't changed since then, because they <laughs> certainly have. Yeah. And, I mean, and the first 12 were failures, mind you. Oh, boy. They were all covered up under the guise of a, a scientific satellite program. Incidentally, the first Corona spy satellite got more electronic intelligence information about the Soviet Union, this is 1960, than all of the U-2 flights that had preceded it. Wow. That's why they wanted it up there, because they knew that from space, you know, you can get a lot of information, just go round and round. <laughs> well, you know, it's a little hard to do the flights uh, yeah. too often and stuff. And, yeah. uh, as we found out, they can be shot down. And, you know, there's a good example. The Russians knew we were flying U-2s over the Soviet Union, and they protested in secret to the United States. The United States government obviously knew we were flying spy satellites over the Soviet spy airplanes over the Soviet Union. That was illegal, violating somebody else's uh, airspace. Neither country said anything, not because they liked each other, but the Russians certainly didn't want to admit this because they'd have to say they couldn't do anything about it. Yeah. So, of course, they kept it secret until they had. Remember, we were still lying when they got Gary Powers and his airplane and his camera. <laughs> you know, he was supposed to take a poison pill and die so that nobody would know what was going on. Well, he didn't. Huh. Uh, but what I'm getting at here is there are times when uh, different countries have the same goals. You don't need to be a conspiracy. They don't meet together and say, well, I won't say anything if you don't. Yeah. And as another example of that, and there's a reason for giving this one, in 2001, the U.S. government sponsored a get-together near Washington of the families of 166 United States military people who'd been in reconnaissance planes that had been shot down near the Soviet Union and Korea and China without one word appearing in public. And this was back in the 50s, late 40s, early 50s, mostly. 166 crewmen, and people say they can't keep secrets. Yeah. And I, I mention this incidentally because I've been working on, well, with Frank Faschino, Jr., author of the Braxton County uh, monster cover-up of the Flatwoods monster reveal. This is a case that happened in September 12, 1952, which everybody knows was the biggest year for UFOs in Project Blue Book history. At least more sightings reported, anyway, uh, that we're aware of. And I wrote the forward and epilogue, and there's a new edition going to be coming out. But some people objected to the first edition on the basis that we talked, or Frank talks about uh, dogfights between jets and, I mean, our military interceptors, to be more precise, and UFOs. That didn't happen. That's all malarkey. What are you talking about? Well, I'd also mentioned that I had at that time heard six different stories of more planes going up than came back down, uh, going up to chase UFOs. Well, when people were giving us a hard time, we started looking, getting clippings from other people, checking things out. And uh, as it turns out, there were loads of reports of dogfights. And as a matter of fact, what we found, much to my surprise, and I've been interested since 1958, was that there were orders given to military pilots to shoot down UFOs if they didn't land when instructed to do so. Now, you can think of all the cartoons that might go with that. <laughs> but in addition, 
General Roger Ramey, who was also connected with the Roswell event in 1947. He was only a brigadier general then. He obviously didn't displease anybody. By now, he was a major general. Stated publicly, he's quoted in a newspaper, we have scrambled interceptors hundreds of times to chase UFOs. Well, hundreds of times. He didn't say several, some, a few, hundreds of times. That goes along with the notion that we're supposed to shoot them down. Now, what Frank Faschino and I found, and this will be in the new edition of the book, is that there were an awful lot of accidents to military planes in 1952. There were three pilots who each had over 100 missions in Korea, where MiGs were flying around, too. Yeah. Uh, came back and crashed. Huh. And some of the crash stories talk about the plane was disintegrated. Another one, the planes disappeared. Whew. Now, that's kind of scary stuff. Yeah, I'll say. And for people who say, oh, we couldn't keep that secret, I point to these 166 airmen who died in secret without their families knowing what had happened. So some of them, incidentally, were, became prisoners of war and were probably tortured and so forth. Uh, but their families didn't know what had happened to them. So there's a larger picture here, in other words, of things going on that we don't hear much about and where the press hasn't done its job. Yeah. That's very unfortunate. Moving on to the to the MJ-12 documents. Um, now, I've noticed, uh, I do a lot of looking at uh, Grant Cameron's website, and he sort of like, he's track of a lot of these documents that are coming out now. And uh, there seems to be a concerted effort to flood the field with new documents in the last, like, 10 years or so? Um, what well, do you think yeah. of that? Well, in my additional chapter in Top Secret Magic, I deal with a whole bunch of documents that Tim Cooper received uh, in his post office box in California and somebody knocking at his door and so forth, MJ-12 documents. Yeah. And I've been in touch with Tim for some time, so I got copies of these things. And other people have picked up on them. And what I found, I got a research grant from the Fund for UFO Research to do some follow-up. And as I point out in this extra chapter to Top Secret Magic and in my paper, Roswell and the MJ-12 documents in the New Millennium, a MUFON paper from the year 2000, of course, uh, a number of these documents are clearly fraudulent. I found they're, they're what I call emulations. Yeah. That is, you take an original document and you retype it with a few selective changes and you scan, or Xerox most likely scan, the handwritten portions of the document, combine these, and you got a great-looking document with a genuine signature. Yeah. But I found the originals, you see, Yeah. because I go to archives and I check on things and I don't believe anybody. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, I also found, in a whole bunch more of these, there were seven that were clearly emulations, and I've showed these to lots of people, the original and the emulation, and they all agree once they look at them, you know, side by side. That, uh, and they, they all have mistakes in them. Uh, you know, it's kind of crazy uh, if you look carefully at them. And I found mistakes in a bunch of the other documents. So uh, it's standard intelligence organization practice. If good stuff gets out, you flood the market with garbage. Yeah. And people find the garbage. And I say, well, if this is phony, then that is phony. That's false reasoning. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it, it's the kind of reasoning that says since most sightings can be explained, all can be. Since most people aren't seven feet tall, nobody is. Since most drugs don't cure diseases, they kill people, uh, none do. I mean, you know, totally false reasoning, but it sounds good. And so, uh, and I just finished the book, Exempt from Disclosure, mm -hmm. by uh, Robert Collins and Richard Doty. And Doty was the one who got Bill Moore involved with uh, Paul Benowitz and so forth. Yeah. And uh, I find uh, documents in there that are phony, that they accept as real. Oh, really? And I don't know who made these. And some people insist, well, if you can't tell me who who created them and why, then I'll believe that they're genuine. And look, I tell people, I'm a dumb old physicist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I don't understand a lot of things. The serial killers, for one. I don't understand priests who attack choir boys sexually. I don't understand grown men who attack four-year-old girls sexually. This doesn't make any sense to me. And yet it happens. Like it or not, it happens. So I don't know why people make phony documents to get attention, to distract the researchers. But I'm satisfied, as I point out in the book, Top Secret Magic, final chapter, they, they call it an afterword. It's, <laughs> it's uh, 4,995 afterwards. <laughs> but uh, as I point out in there, I'm satisfied that the Eisenhower briefing document the Cutler-Twining memo, the Truman-Forrestal memo, and probably the Special Operating Manual 1.01 are genuine. The rest, at best in my gray basket, some of them definitely in my no-way-Jose basket. <laughs> so the thing is, you got to take each document on its own merits or lack thereof, and you have to take each argument that way. I mean, there are people saying, uh, let me give a for instance, the Cutler Twining memo, which is the only original document here. Uh, that is, it's an original carbon on onion skin paper. That's what they used to use when people used carbon and there were no Xerox machines. Yeah. It was found in the National Archives in a box that it certainly didn't belong in, where it was undoubtedly planted, if you will. And that box was first handled after the death, two weeks after the death of the last survivor of MJ-12. Anyway, all kinds of objections have been raised about that. The typeface is wrong, said Phil Class, and he paid me a thousand dollars for proving him wrong about that one. Mm -hmm. uh, the security marking, top secret restricted. Well, nobody used that. The government says nobody used that. Well, as it turns out, the General Accounting Office was looking for Roswell materials for Congressman uh, Steve Schiff back in the 90s, and in the facility that they visited, they were they had clearances up through everything for them, and the material was up through top secret. They didn't find anything about Roswell, which was their goal, but they noted on page 80 of a 400-page page report that they had written about their activities, we found several instances of the use of top secret restricted, even though we had been told Majestic 12 in parenthesis, that it was not in use at that time. So I called them and said, hey, I need copies of those. Stan, the stuff's still classified. You can't get copies of that. But they're saying so. It's good enough for me. Um, there were a whole bunch of other things about that document and all the others uh, where if you do your digging, if you do your homework, yeah. 
if you say, you know, how did anybody know that this was true when we didn't have that information until long after we got the documents, uh, then things begin to look good for those original documents. And so anything new, I'd say I am very wary, put it in my gray basket, but don't buy into it. And that's one of the things I find with this exempt from disclosure. They bought everything. Yeah. Well, you can't do that. I'm sorry. Well, maybe they're selling everything. Well, <laughs> you know, they're trying to put it out. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm unhappy with the book. It doesn't have an index. It needed an editor, a lot of misspellings, and some factual misstatements and stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I'm not saying they were lying, which is really quite a different kind of question. Yeah. I'm saying they've repeated rumors and half-truths and so forth, and uh, the reader has no way to, uh, to determine whether they're true or not. Okay, now, uh, like I told you earlier, I just got into this the last uh, three or four years. I'm only 25 years old, um, and like I said in the introduction, you're a living legend in the UFO field. So what advice do you have for the next generation of ufologists and for future ufologists who are coming down the pike now? I'd say be skeptical about everything. Do your homework. There's an enormous amount of information out there. Uh, there are five large-scale scientific studies that I discuss. My book, Top Secret Magic, is a 10-page bibliography of good stuff. It also lists the skeptical books, too, uh, because you have to know your enemies, so to speak. Um, join MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network. Get their monthly newsletter. Be wary of everything you look at. Uh, I mean, I, I can probably, if I work harder, find a half a dozen people whose word I would take about anything. Um, oh, wow. John Schusler of MUFON and uh, Dr. Bruce McAbee, Rob Swiatek, uh, my big fan of Bud Hopkins. Uh, there's an awful lot of people that I say you've got to check everything. So if you're interested, recognize the fact that if these things are real, it's the biggest story of the millennium. I mean, my four major conclusions are that, one, the evidence is overwhelming that planets being visited by intelligently controlled extraterrestrial spacecraft. In other words, some underline 27 times, some UFOs are really in the spacecraft. Two, the subject represents a kind of cosmic Watergate. That does not mean that everybody in the government knows what's going on. That's not how you keep secrets. The need-to-know concept is very important. Washington government takes advantage of all those big egos in Washington. Well, if this was going on, I would know about it because I know everything. <laughs> That's all I can say to that. Uh, the third conclusion is none of the arguments made against the first two by the nasty, noisy negativists stand up under careful scrutiny. And finally, four, we're dealing with the biggest story of the millennium. Visits to planet Earth by alien spacecraft, successful cover-up of the best data, bodies and wreckage for, what is it, 58 years now. So it's a big story. It's not a little story. You're not going to find out all about it in two weeks at your computer. I'm constantly getting questions from people who have read some of the anti-literature and who don't know that those questions have already been answered. Yeah. About the MJ-12 documents, I've had half a dozen questions in the last four days. And I say, read my book. I deal with that. I deal with that one. I deal with that one. What do you want? <laughs> I can't repeat all this stuff. Read the book. <laughs> exactly, yeah. 
All right, well, tell us uh, where we can get the book. It's available. Is it available in bookstores, too? Generally speaking, it's available in bookstores, you know, in the Barnes and & Nobles and probably Amazon.com and all that. Or they can send me a check for 17 bucks at Stanton Friedman, Post Office Box 958, Holton, H-O-U-L-T-O-N, Maine, M-E, 04730-0958. Or they can go to my website, www.stantonfriedman.com, and we, I have PayPal now. I'm getting oh, modern. Boy. I'm getting modern. I still use slides at my lectures, but <laughs> PayPal is a help for a lot of people, and so it makes it easier. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my website lists uh, videos and a CD-ROM and my two-volume DVD, no less. How much more modern can you get? Wow, my nice. saucers are real. Wow. Uh, and if they buy books from me, of course, they get them. They're all autographed uh, by me. Awesome. And um, what can we expect from you in 2006? Well, that's a good question. I've done a whole bunch of television interviews that haven't aired yet, so I'm looking forward to some of them. And I've got a proposal at a book publisher for Flying Saucers and Science, a new book. I'm anxious to hear back from that. And so, you know, more of the same. Uh, I'll still be doing more lectures. I'll be at the Aztec New Mexico Conference on March 24th, 25th, 26th. I'll be in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, near Harrisburg, actually, on May the 5th, uh, sort of a Ghostbusters conference, which will have some UFO stuff. Oh, cool. And check out MUFON. I was there, and I'll expect I'll be in Roswell in July, because uh, there's always something exciting happening there. Exactly. Well, thank you very much, Stan, for sitting down and talking to me for so long. Um, this has been just a real thrill for me, and I think someday when uh, when I get grandkids, I'm going to play the interview for them and say, yeah, I knew Stan Friedman. Are you kidding me? Here, listen. And, um, you know, I really, uh, as a person who just got into ufology and as someone who's just got a lot of respect for the field, I want to thank you for your hard work and what you've done for the field. I'm sure a lot of people thank you, but... You know, I want to also go on record and thank you for everything you've done for ufology. You've just been one of the greatest spokesmen in the field I've ever had. So thank you for that. And thank you for appearing on Banal of America Audio. It's hugely appreciated. You're very welcome. My pleasure. That does it for this week's edition of Banal of America Audio Season 1. I want to thank Stanton Friedman for sitting down and talking to us. I want to thank Leslie and Chiron of BanalofAmerica.com for your continued help and support with the audio series. Hope you guys have a very Merry Christmas. And, of course, I want to thank all you great listeners out there who have found Banal of America Audio, who have become listeners, who have stuck with us through the last few months. I want to wish everybody out there listening a very Merry Christmas. I hope you have an awesome holiday. Be safe. Spend time with your family. I hope you get what you want for Christmas, and I just hope you have a fantastic time. Next week, we will have either a new guest or a special clip show type dealio. Uh, I'll have... More information about that next week at some point. So, this is Tim Benall wishing you a very Merry Christmas and signing off.